Welcome to the 34 And we have, oh, such a treat in store for you. Um, first of all, uh, we have the band back together. Vicki Noble is going to be joining us. Hi, Vicki. Hi, Don. Hi, Vicki. <laughs> and um, Vicki is uh, going to be introducing to us Miriam Robbins-Dexter, who is joining us to talk about a plethora of things um, surrounding the mummies in the Tarim Basin. Am I pronouncing that right, Miriam? Yes, you are. Wonderful, wonderful. So I'm going to pass it over to Vicki. Okay. <clears throat> well, I'm going to introduce Miriam Robbins-Dexter, who has a PhD in archaeomythology and ancient Indo-European languages. Uh, we're, we're not talking about just Greek and Latin, but Hittite and Tokarian extinct languages. She wrote her dissertation at UCLA under the guidance of Maria Gimbutas. That work went into her first book, which I love, Whence the Goddesses, Thank a source you. book, in which she introduced us to the bird and snake goddesses of old Europe before male domination. And then she teased out the goddesses found in patriarchal societies after that. She also edited and completed posthumously Maria Gimbutas's final book, The Living Goddesses, in 1999, and co-wrote with archaeologist Victor Mayer a book called Sacred Display, Divine and Magical Figures of Eurasia. Uh, that was 2010, where they detailed the myriad figures found around the world of women displaying their vulvas. Miriam taught at UCLA and is a prominent speaker at international conferences. She's written scores of articles and essays over the years, as well as editing those of others in her fields. She's my beloved colleague, co-editor of our 2015 anthology, Foremothers of the Women's Spirituality Movement, and my longtime dear friend. I'm so pleased to welcome her to our podcast, Make Matriarchy Great Again. Welcome, Miriam. Thank you so much. You got your own cheering section. <laughs> so I just want to ask you a quick question before we get started, Miriam. Uh, Vicky has referred to you as an Indo-Europeanist, uh -huh. and I would love if you could just let us know what that means. Certainly. Okay. There are Indo-European linguists and Indo-European archaeologists. Uh, I'm an Indo-European linguistic uh, linguist. However, um, we study ancient languages, a lot of them. We study uh, linguistics, how to um, connect what we're reading and, and um, understand the, the relationship between the languages. We study mythology to um, look at the, the earliest texts in those languages. And um, we also study archaeology, although not as, uh, not as much archaeology as the Indo-European archaeologists, and we're not spade archaeologists. Although I do go to a lot of archaeological conferences because I'm fascinated. So mainly, I, I like, love to translate ancient texts. 
I, I have a question about that, just on a like an individual level, because I have a fascination with languages. So, one, how many languages do you speak, uh, and do you, or do you know some? I know are, are, are languages that are. Um, okay. But well, how did you how did you go about learning? Is that just a nat natural gift that you have? That's the real sort of interest. I've I felt. um that is my talent. We have different talents. I don't I don't have any artistic talent whatsoever, but I do have linguistic talent, and um, I had been a classics major, majoring in Latin and Greek as an undergraduate, and I wasn't interested enough in reading the secondary literature uh, that has to be read when one does classics graduate degrees. So just a couple of years before, um, there um, an offshoot of the classics department was formed, and it was called in European Studies. Um, my dissertation chair, um, um, Jan Puvel and Maria Gambudis, were part of that program, and they both ended up on my dissertation committee. So um, I, I, we um, had... The program takes many years because there's no master's degree, so you just keep doing it. And we studied about two new languages a year for many years. But also a lot of us had fascination with other languages. So I know bits and pieces of a lot of other languages. I've published in maybe 25, um, but I've worked with 37, something like that. And, wow. And let Amazing. me tell you, my expertise is is, um, is not the same with all languages. I um, A few years ago for um, a book, I was um, translating a little bit of Egyptian. I just needed four lines. It took me a month <laughs> of, you know, looking up every single hieroglyphic, learning the, 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 more alphabetic characters. I mean, it just was, and looking up every single, single word. So I don't have this, this great ability um, that one might think. Also, I have found in the last maybe decade, I can still learn new languages and read and translate them, but I can't speak them. Something has happened to my brain and I, I can still speak the, the languages I learned earlier, but new ones just don't come to me, nor can I really hear what pe what people are saying. So I have no conversation, conversational ability in the later languages. So you're saying oh, only 35 languages is your hard limit, just 35. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I, I love think... languages. You know, I get, obs I, I tend to be a little bit obsessive compulsive. So compulsive obsessive. So um, if I love something, I want to do it a lot. Apologies, well, I, Vicky, I also I, I don't think Vicky off. Apologies. Sorry. Yeah, I also don't think there's much call for conversational Tokarian these days. Well, no, no, those are the ancient ones. That's very true. <laughs> but when I studied Tokarian, we didn't even know about the mummies. I studied Tokarian in the early '70s, I think, and um, we had no idea really who those people were. It's so fascinating. It makes me want to tell the story of our twin papers. Let's do it. <laughs> well, in the early 2000s, I contacted Miriam because I had read uh, uh, an anthology of uh, articles about the mummies, uh, the mummies found in the Tarim Basin. So these are Caucasian mummies in China, basically. And uh, I and I read the articles, and Miriam was one of the editors of that book, and and it was so the book was amazing, and it just blew my mind, and I felt like a lot of the things I had been tracking, and uh, a lot of the hunches I had, and just a, a lot of my research material from the Double Goddess book that I was working on, uh, linked up with these mummies. And I was so excited. And I, I called Miriam and said, can you come to my house and sit in my library with me? Because I think I'm on to something <laughs> and I need help. And she, and she did. And then we, we started to work on uh, papers, a, sort of a big, a big project. Uh, and I thought that uh, 
I thought that the, the all the legends about Medea um, had something to do with the same material that Elizabeth Barber had had written about in terms of the mummies. This is sort of esoteric, but I'll just go on. Um, she linked she linked them to the Caucasus as a as an origin place where through the weaving technologies that they that were in the burials and she she showed that they had migrated from from that place around the black sea uh in both directions to the tarim basin which is basically was northern tibet um and to crete and troy and it was all my double goddess material i was so excited um, and so we so we did this paper. I did my paper, Medea and the Shaman Women of the Silk Road, and Miriam did her paper, uh, Medea and the Circumpontic. And her Circumpontic sisters, because yeah. I was looking at uh, female figures around the whole Black Sea, and, and what what place um, Colchis or or Georgia yeah. played in it. Yes, Medea is said to have come from Colchis in the Caucasus, and but then her later story takes place in Greece when Jason and the Argonauts and blah blah blah. And so I felt that she had been one of the abducted royal women that we were reading about, uh, and that uh, that Elizabeth Barber had talked about, and that she had been taken from Colchis by Jason to to Greece. Uh, and and on and on and so Miriam translated all the found and translated all the earliest mentions of Medea. Oh wow! Yeah, and the, and so we were able to produce these two papers that we uh, presented at a conference that Joan Marler uh, put together uh, in um, Italy in two thousand. Thanks to Christina Biaggi. Yes, that's right. In in Christina Biaggi's family uh, villa. Compound. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. That sounds amazing. It was. <laughs> so please go on, Miriam. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. <laughs> okay. Um. So... Oh, I'm talking about what an Indo-Europeanist does. So I think I'm, I listed it: linguistics, um, ancient languages, um, comparative mythology, and and the linguistics, comparative historical, um, and archaeology. Great. I was able to take some um, archaeology courses with Maria Gambudas in the late '60s. I also thought it would be about which dates just me. To- <laughs> <laughs> in a in a good way, um, okay. one of the things that we had we had talked to uh, I don't know if you're familiar with John Colarusso. We had uh, had him on. He's a linguist, uh, professor of linguistics who translated the Nartsargas, so mm-hmm. stuff around the Black Sea. So we've had uh, as Vicky was saying, this might be esoteric, but of course, Vicky, everything about this podcast is esoteric. So it's it's true, <laughs> totally fine. Um, what I want to develop, though, Vicky and and Miriam, is this this hunch because one of the things that have, Miriam for us that well, I've been excited about uh, having on this podcast, all that we know about you, is the tie-in with this the these topics that we discussed throughout the last three years of this podcast, which are these different movements of both mainly women, of course, that we're talking about from different tribes, but also obviously mm-hmm. men. They're both, of course, in every in these tribes. So. It, maybe starting with Vicky's hunch, Vicky, if you could maybe say a little more about what that hunch was about, about these movements, about what was significant in terms of what we've talked about in terms of the matriarchies. And then maybe Miriam, if you could comment on what connection or non-connection you see with those kinds of movements. Well, uh, oh my gosh, there's so much. Uh, you know, Barber's work, Elizabeth Whalen Barber, her work on the, the weaving and the weaving connections between the mummies and, say, uh, you know, Scottish tartan plaids. Yes. You know, it was just, it, it just blew my mind. And as I say, she showed that they had migrated out from the Caucasus. So they arrived, the first mummies arrived in the Tarim Basin around, around 2000 BCE, wearing uh, 
you know, wearing textiles. And the second group was probably even more interesting in a way, uh, the 1200 BC group, because they're the ones that had some that has been linked to the Tocharian language. Actually, Pardon? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we know, we know that they, you know, they're speaking an Indo-European language or they're working with it. And those Tocharian, the only Tocharian that have been uh, found unearthed, you know, by archaeologists uh, are, they're all Buddhist texts from much later. So that's the only thing so far that scholars know that Tocharian was used for. And so, well, um, may I say, so, um, uh, one set is Buddhist texts, the, another is folk tales. Oh, really? Lots of really interesting, like the mechanical ba- maid. A man builds a mechanical maid and then falls in love with it. We oh, my God. That that's, so that's, so, that's so current. That's so timely with yes. all the robotic <laughs> handmaids, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, dear. <laughs> Everything old is new again, right? Yes. Vicky, yes, exactly. One question, though, Vicky, when you said there were two different movements. So what was the difference between the second group, which you said was clearly Indo-European and spoke to Carrion? Was the first group also Indo-European? Do we know what they spoke? Yes. And I can speak, uh, when you want, I can speak to the DNA of that. Yes, please do. DNA studies. Yeah, do that right now if you Yeah, let's dive right in. Okay. Well, a number of articles have been written in the last... mm, decade and a half um, about the DNA of, of the mummies. And um, there was a wonderful 2010 article. Well, actually, before that, um, there was a, a fascinating or a long article by Victor Mayer on the rediscovery and complete evacuation of Ordex Necropolis. Now, that eventually came to be called the Shaohei Cemetery, uh, the Little River Cemetery. And the at the end of the, this first 2006 article, Victor wrote, he sure hoped that DNA studies could be done on them when they were, when it was available. Well, and then he wrote, um, the 2000 book called The Tara Mummies, Ancient China and the Mystery of the Earliest Peoples of the West. And um, the year before that, Elizabeth Barber published, uh, 1999 published, The Mummies of Urumqi. She focused a lot on the textiles, but she also gave, both of them gave such incredible background on the Tara Mummies. Well, we move forward to 2010, and Victor was a part of, of a number of scientific authors on a pa- uh, papers Evidence that a West-East admixed population lived in the Tarim Basin as early as the early Bronze Age. Well, they were, they and they decided that they were an admixture from populations or originating from both the West and the East, and that's that's important. Since the early Bronze Age, at least three thousand, and probably well, we know now that it was earlier. Ah. Oh. Yeah. So even before the Indo-Europeans? No. No? no. Okay. They, they probably got there. Well, we know of them probably by 2000. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So um, then um, um, there is a, was a paper, also 2010, a Western Eurasian male is found in 2,000-year-old elite Zhongnu, um, in northeast Mongolia, and that male um, had the R1A1Y DNA. So it was mostly um, Asian, um, all the way up north, well north and, and east in Mongolia, but there was already an Indo European who was there. How early? Um, this is not, this is um, 2000. 
uh-huh. uh, years ago. So it, it's between uh, 100 BCE and 100 CE, somewhere around there. Oh, much later then. Than much our... later. And that, so, uh, the, um, I'm sorry, Mary, the R, just for the listen, the R1 DNA, and I, if not mistaken, that is a common uh, DNA family, Y uh, patrilineal DNA family for West Eurasian, correct? Say that again. The R1, the, you, you referenced that he has the R1 it's Western DNA. Eurasian Western and, Eurasian. Um, yeah. And um, writing about the, the rest of Eurasia, Wolfgang Hock and others wrote that, that they were Indo-Europeans, that this was an Indo-European uh, um, hap- haplogroup. But um, not only that, they were able to trace where they came from. And they came from exactly as Maria Gambuda said, north in, in the 50s, north of the Black and, uh, 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 and Caspian Seas. So that, so that, that, that truly that, was the Indo-European homeland, and we know that for sure. And she nailed it, even though there were so many other people working on the problem. Exactly. exactly. So um, then in t- also in 2010, Victor Meyer was, um, was part of the paper that isolated the, um, the male burials in, in Xiaohei. Again, this would, would have been Ordex Necropolis. And they were all R1A. They were all, the males were all Indo-European. So when the females look um, Indo-European and are long noses and and so forth, that's because they've inherited that from their fathers. Uh That comes from the paternal line and other things come from the, the mitochondrial DNA, the maternal line. But there, now, there was there was some though recent studies that there are in the mitochondrial line a uh, mixed lineage too as well. Pardon. Right? In the in the more recent, I guess the the last ten years, there's uh, in the mitochondrial line there is still um, both West Eurasian and East Asian DNA. No, right? I think. that is the big problem. Um, and I um, when I when I learned that you wanted me to speak on the Tarim Basin. I emailed Victor Mayer to ask him about those those later later articles. One two thousand fifteen, one in the early around twenty one, twenty two, and um, so may I read you? Sure, yeah, I'd love to hear because there were there were three different ones that came up. 2010, yeah, 2015, and 2018. Sure, I know. yeah, I'd love to hear it. Because I was really confused at that point. So he's, I am, I wrote him, Hi, Victor, I'm confused about re- recent articles on the mummies, not just Chinese studies, but also findings of the Max Plant Institute. And then I um, commented on the different articles, uh, saying now recent articles are saying that, that, um, there, well, I'll, I'll, I'll read you his, his answer. Well, read us the part, read, that's important. Read us what you asked him. Well, I just wanted to know if um, there were some, um, if, if, you know, most of the, the Y DNA, as the Chinese papers were inferring, and the Max Planck Institute, if they were East Asian. So, oh, so, so not the mitochondrial, because I was mentioning the mitochondrial DNA. You're talking about the Y DNA. He's talking about um, the mitochondrial DNA um, is um, East Asian. Okay, because uh, the, the, the three later, that I okay, great, because the three I saw had it both East Asian and West Eurasian. I guess okay. that's a different question. So, in 2015, they said they were just referring to the mitochondrial DNA. In the early t- uh, 20, 21-22, they they left that out. And they just said that that no, there's no admixture there. Um, it's all just East Asian. Now this this you know has a a reason, this has a political reason. But let me read you what he wrote me. 
My Mummy's Project started in 1991 as primarily focused on ancient DNA. Shortly after the study of ancient DNA began, I wasted enormous amounts of energy and lots of money on it until I grew deeply disenchanted when I realized genetic studies are highly susceptible to statistical manipulation and other types of distortion for subjective purposes. In, in the early days, all we could do was mtDNA. When Y chromosomes came in, it got even more complicated. In the last couple, and remember, he was part of the 2010 paper that talked about the Y DNA being Indo-European. Yeah. In the last couple of years after David Reich's Harvard lab got involved, things got totally crazy. I won't go into detail here because eventually I'll write a thorough rebuttal. Wow. And in the um, 2000 paper, he reminds me, he said, we did indeed conclude that the population of Xiaohei was admixed. That means mtDNA Asian, uh, um, Y-DNA Indo-European. Uh-huh. So he's refuting in the, the Reich Institute. In the sensational paper that came from the Reich lab, that's the early uh, 21, I can't remember if it was 21 or 22, mm -hmm. they argued no admixture, which is nonsense. I marched right into their lab and told them as much. I pointed out that I and other members of their team signed off on that original 2010 paper. And there were a lot of the same people from the 2010 paper in the later papers. And that just helps us to understand how they change their story whenever they feel like it. Yes, exactly so. Well, it's interesting because the Reich Institute has become obviously the standard for all the... It has. Yeah, and they're um, somehow supporting the... Um, the um, Chinese government, if you think it, about it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. no, it's, 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 because I mean, mummies, sorry, please. Wait. The mummies weren't even, you know, we didn't know about the Caucasian mummies in China for something like 50 years because the Chinese weren't really that interested in that information getting out. They like the idea of everything starting in China. And maybe we're all like that, you know, it's nationalism, but they were clearly from somewhere else. And Victor's work and made that, you know, helped us to understand that. And um, furthermore, it suits their purposes because the Uyghur people of, um, it's, it, I guess they call it Western China, but it's really West of China, say they should be autonomous because they have a different ethnicity. And that's why the Chinese are trying to show yes. that the, the ethnicity. Are you talking about the Uyghurs? How do you say yeah, but I'm sorry. I'm, I'm terrible at pronouncing The Uyghurs. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> so, so in some sense, oh, I'm sorry, Vicki, please. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, in some sense, this, I mean, can lead us to, to a, a further discussion about the Indo-European, the incursion, the Amnaya, because what we're, what we're talking about in this sense is how do particular populations talk about their own history and how do they recreate or erase other history as they arrive? So in some sense, we're, we're looking at sort of nationalism in service of how we look at the past. And the thing about the the whole Central Asian area, which is the route of migration, whatever way they went, they went east. Um, when we're talking about that area, you know, it's very complex, the yeah. archaeology and the ancient history of it. And it was, th these people were nomadic once they were on horses and everybody was going everywhere. And yes. the, the movements are extremely hard to track, and lots of good scholars are trying to do that. And and so I my what I'm calling my hunch, you know, I I have a hunch, but it's sort of like a wishful thinking. Maybe I like to I I wonder if there weren't some of our uh, refugees matriarchal refugees from old Europe who moved, who went east over time 
and who who became part of those different populations. For instance, the BMAC population uh, in central China, they, they don't really know who those people were. And they even think that the bow tie, remember when I was into the bow tie, they, they um, developed uh, horseback or uh, horse, horse domestication earlier than anyone else. They were probably in Kazakhstan, maybe before that on the Volga. And so I was tracking all those things and they're not, they were not Yamnayan. They have no connection uh, in the DNA to the Yamnaya. And so that's very, that's very liberating for my theory, you know, because, well, who were they then? And maybe they were the matriarchal women that domesticated horses, you know. Well, Vicki, I, I had the same, that's how we, as I've said to you probably many times, how we connected. I had a similar, I saw a similar pattern and discovered your writing because wow. I think that there is, I, you know, I, I obviously, you know, Miriam, I know that the DNA is, is in dispute at this point, And we know that there is an issue in terms of, I mean, I see this even in terms of individual DNA stuff. People will tell me about, they did their DNA with such and such a company and they'll get wild, wild variations in where their ancestry is from. I shouldn't say wild, but they'll, they'll get unclear variations in their ancestry. So we know this is not settled in any way, but from from just a reasoning standpoint, what you're seeing, Vicky, I just want to say, I see the same thing. I'm curious about the same thing. And maybe, again, we're both, you know, maybe we're both off. But Well, you know, there's probably something because at some point I, I did ask Victor if he thought that was possible, that there were some migrants to the Tarim Basin who were not um, – Indo-European, and he he said he thought that was quite possible. And if I found anything, please let him know. <laughs> uh, well, they're doing more. I, I I'm not reading um, the um, the mitochondrial haplogroups of the Tarim Basin, and I'll get to that. But that would tell us where they come from. Oh, let's do that! Wow, that's yeah, I'll, that. I'll I'll send some of the stuff that I've found to both of you. That that oh, I don't know. Again, it'll be a question of, like you say, Miriam, how much of this could be in dispute. But but some of that seems to indicate that in terms of what I'm reading. But like you say, it's is this one of those things where we need to storm the offices and go? How dare you, sir? Yeah. Have this information, yeah. but 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 I think it's still. I think yeah, I'll, I'll send you the links of what I see that. That seem to at least go in that direction, but we'll, so I'm just we'll gonna I'm just gonna uh, butt in here for just a second and and break this down just a smidge uh, for our listeners because uh, a lot of these conversations have happened offline, and so um, what we're chasing the ideas that Sean and Vicky and I are sort of chasing is this idea that there was um, there was there were these waves of invasions that happened, three different waves of invasions that happened from sort of the steppe area into old Europe that disrupted the culture. Um, and old Europe is Maria Gambutis's term um, that disrupted what we feel was a matriarchal culture, um, a, a farming, hunting, gathering, peaceful no weapons, there were no wars type of culture. And these, these, Indo, these proto-Indo-Europeans, Indo-Europeans came, came sweeping down and the male um, indigenous DNA disappears. Yes, it was wiped out. Completely wiped out and is replaced by this I'm going to use a, a, a dramatic term, invader DNA. And that as this disruption happened to that matriarchal indigenous culture, completely understandable populations that were of that descent fled in all directions. So they tried to escape this invasion, tried to, um, tried to hold on to their freedom and to their ways of life. And the Tarim Basin is one of those places that we are looking at to see if there is evidence there because these mummies are so beautifully preserved and they have the textiles, which, you know, the 
preserved textiles are so hard to come by. They, they degrade so easily. And so they are this amazing find. And so um, Vicky and Sean and I are, are sort of coming at it from this angle of, is there something there that can um, add a puzzle piece to this story of these migrations? And one of the things that Miriam and I were writing about in our papers and that is of ongoing interest is that all across Eurasia, when once the Bronze Age had begun and the Indo-Europeans were also going in all directions, um, the, the women, the different, uh, the different sort of empires, as they call them, for a couple of thousand years came and went, you know, with different men at the top, uh, chieftains or whatever. And, um, but the women and how they functioned and the things, the clothing they wore and stuff like that, it, it was remarkably the same, very conservative uh, in the sense of the same patterns and the same, uh, the same shamanic practices and the same accoutrements in their burials over a period of a couple thousand years at least, maybe 3,000 years. And so it's the female shamanism that continued to be the religion of all of those different people. All the men at the top came and went, but the female uh, religious preceptors continued down through the ages. They weren't replaced by men until uh, Judaism and Christianity, basically. Yeah. And so that's what we're always keeping in the back of our minds as we look at these migrations and these different comings and goings and mergings of different people, because the, it was like the women had something in common and the cultures had something in common all the way across Eurasia because of these female shamans and their practices. Miriam. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have something that absolutely um, fortifies what you've said. In this um, Ordex Necropolis, um, which was the uh, Shaohei Cemetery in the Tarim Basin, uh, dating to the probably the the bronze dating to the early bronze age okay in the center of the cemetery stood an enormous wooden post carved in the shape of a painted awl the largest phallic symbol discovered at the site the females were buried with phallic symbols the males were buried with vulvar symbols Wow. <laughs> yes. It had been completely painted with red color. The upper tip was rounded, but the shaft was shaped so as to have nine angles. As one might have expected, it was placed at the head of an old lady. The special status of this venerable woman was further signaled by an extra post that had been erected between the gigantic phallus and her coffin. On this additional post was hung an enormous pair of cattle horns bleached a blinding white by the ages. The entire coffin was painted bright red and the body of the old lady, lady who lay inside it was extremely well preserved. Her face appeared gaunt but her, and her, but her eyes were closed serenely. Now, um, I was immediately moved to think of the, um, the Lady of Tartaria. This is a site um, about 4500 BCE, a site in Romania, so old Europe. And uh, for a long time, um, they, they had excavated this, this grave of this old person, older person, probably in their 50s, but they hadn't um, been able to do gender analysis. Well, in um, the last two decades, they found it was a woman. They really thought it would be a man, a priest. And that changed thinking a whole lot. So priestess, shaman, she was the wise woman of her tribe. Yep. And yep. very early. That's quite early. That's quite early. Well, it's old Europe. This is yeah. you know, this was the function. This was the wisdom function of older women. Yeah. 
Could we talk about this? Let's use this maybe to just to tell the listeners a little bit about this. And we've something we've touched on before, but just what are, what are we talking about when we talk about this Indo-European incursion to old Europe? Can either, you know, Miriam, you or Vicky, just give us uh, an overview or give the listener an overview of what this rupture is about? I'd like to do that. Okay, um, they, the, the Indo-European, and we know now that they were Indo-European men, we know that from DNA studies, but my theory that I wrote about around 2006, I think, was that it was young men full of testosterone because the homeland actually wasn't as patriarchal as all the places to which the Indo-European men went. Yes. Women, right, as we know, Vicky, from Janine's studies, Janine yes. Davis Kimball, the women could be priestesses, could be warriors. The women had non-home functions in the homeland, whereas they were pretty much supposed to um, stay at home and weave um, in the in the early Greek and Italic and so forth cultures, um, Penelope weaving while Odysseus is out adventuring, right? So um, these young men migrated out in three waves, about 4,500, about 3,000, and about 2,800 or a little bit later. The, the first two didn't make a huge ripple in most of the world, except parts of old Europe, where already, as Vicky says, the people needed to, um, the people became refugees. Um, but by 2800, everything changed throughout Eurasia. And the um, Indo-European males became dominant, Kurgans, Kurgan burials, with um, men at the center, uh, slaves, uh, huge uh, wealthy grave goods. Um, sometimes um, the the mate would be murdered and put in the grave. Um, uh, Sucky burial. Sometimes the children. Pardon. Sometimes also the children. Yes, sometimes children. So um, this changed the face of um, the world considerably. One thing I don't understand, I've been reading recently about Varna in Bulgaria, which had um, the graves had more gold than was found anywhere else in the world, more gold ever. But the the richest grave of all, the the man was not Indo-European. It wasn't in so things were already changing by Varna. Oh, is that right? What was yeah. he Anatolian or what was it where was he from? Um I it just says um Neolithic farmer. Uh-huh. Okay. So he and, was actually part of the Neolithic farming community. Yeah. Population. But, but he somehow had risen in status. So didn't didn't Maria suggest that that had to do with trade and commerce? And she thought the men were doing trade and commerce. Probably, probably. And also, uh, I read somewhere that it was also linked to the uh, status of the smiths who were doing the metallurgy that was very amazing. In the, Europe, the, the Smith had really um, high status. Uh huh. Very true. So you think the the class status, in a way, was already becoming an issue? That's what I'm thinking, and you know, this is new thought for me. So I'm still trying to digest it. Yeah. Well, one of the things I've read is the way that the the first wave was almost like they sent scouts out or something. And and when they, I've always imagined then the greed, you know, when they saw all that gold and all that finery um, that they wanted it and came to get it and came and got it. But, but one of the interesting things about the archaeology recently, maybe this was David Anthony, but I'm not sure, um, is that they, they obviously came in early before they destroyed anything and had some sort of uh, commerce going on. And they took back 
a lot of the goods from old Europe, from Bulgaria, to the grave sites in the Yamnaya Cemetery somewhere, where I can't remember the name of it. Uh, and so that made me think that they were already, you know, interested. Yeah. And the Yamnaya were a group of, of Indo-Europeans, and they were the Indo-Europeans were, who were in the third and final wave of um, migrations out and invasions. So that's a wrong name, maybe, to give to the early... To all the... Yeah, I call them Indo-Europeans or Kurgan people. Okay. Um, so, so one theory that someone posed uh, was that they... They were already, the, okay, this is complicated. Well, anyway, they were making deals. They were trading. They liked the stuff. They wanted it. Uh, maybe there's some way that the the way that when patriarchy goes into matriarchal places, they yeah. often delegate authority to the men who haven't prior to that time been uh, in positions of authority. Think of 19th century anthropologists who went and studied other cultures purely through a male bias, uh -huh. and didn't even want to interview the women, so had no idea of what those cultures were. Right. Well, and also think of the history of our own country when the colonials yeah. from Europe came to meet the Native Americans. They were yes. not interested in any of the women. Exactly. They only wanted to talk to the men, even when the the structure of their culture was was egalitarian, or that there yeah. were certain functions where the women were the leaders. And I know, they yeah, had total bias. <laughs> it total totally the same bias. Yeah, and yeah. there's a there's a whole thing that they did in uh, in African colonialism uh, where they they created what they called governors. They made these men who were maybe like the, the mother's brother, you know. Right. Uh, they made the men, they called them governors, and they made them the ones in authority. And so I saw the Varna thing sort of like that. Well, you, you're, I'm sure you're right because there's also Indo-European um, uh, skeletons, if you will, in Varna. So they had gotten there. It's just that this major very ostentatious grave was not of an Indo-European. The one with the gold phallus? <laughs> the, the one with the most gold. I, I don't remember exactly what the objects were. There, there's a phallus cup that that is in the burial. <laughs> it's made of gold. <laughs> of course it is. And also the scepter. You know, this that they're oh, yeah. The yeah. Indo Europeans were big on scepters. Maria published uh, Indo European scepters many decades ago. Huh. This was more, this was made of gold and it looked like the other Varna stuff. So, okay. It could have been, uh, you know, they just may have made him into some kind of king. Mm -hmm. And the area around Varna is naturally rich in gold. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So they they came upon this place where, you know, where gold was com was much more common, and and you know, not having experienced it like before, uh huh. It was and uh, the people had uh, been making priestess jewelry out of it and things like that, you know. Oh, yeah, and in this um, Shaohei Cemetery, there were four really specially um, made coffins, uh, and all of the occupants of these special coffins were adult females. And the grave goods, this is, I'm, this is actually from the article, the grave goods that accompanied them were richer than for most other burials, and this is in the Tarim Basin. So... What's interesting is that the Indo-Europeans didn't seem to change. The ones who went to the Tarim Basin didn't seem to change things that much. I mean, this rich, rich uh, tradition of shaman women, and you can think of the Altai burial, which also is not Indo-European. This, right. this uh, the one with the, with the um, the huge hat. Uh -huh. the, 
crown, a huge crown. Um, so um, I don't think they changed that. That I think they honored these uh, women, these shamans. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. totally. I know. And then the thing that makes the 1200 BC wave really interesting, besides the Tocharian connection, is that they're wearing deep wine red woolen robes that look, yeah. look so similar to the ones that Tibetan nuns and monks wear today. Oh, no question. No question. These were Buddhists. Yeah. yeah. Um, even, even with the, the secular um, writings, um, these these people are clearly Buddhists. Um, say that, Miriam, that, you know, the whole the whole religious studies world goes crazy because the Buddha wasn't even born until 600 B.C., apparently. And so we're talking oh, about... No. Yeah, interesting, huh? <laughs> wow, it's that's like, fascinating. I look at old Europe and say, oh, women invented yoga. Look at that. And then all the yoga people say, oh, that's impossible. Yoga was invented in India in, you know, in blah, blah, 1500 or something. I have an image of a Minoan Greek female figure um, in a half lotus position. So... <laughs> Exactly. I agree with those people. <laughs> wow. And that is a podcast soon to hit the <laughs> airwaves. Uh, we're putting it together now. Ah. The, uh, the sort of ancient origins of the traditions that have become yoga in our modern culture. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, so we uh, we were going to talk about this at the beginning, and then we just dove right into the DNA. But maybe as a way to sort of round out uh, the podcast, Miriam, did you want to uh, tell the story of how you came to know of Victor and the Tarim Basin? I'd love to because it's such an interesting synchronicity to me. I'm I probably uh, believe in fate and synchronicities more than a lot of people. So um, in, <laughs> there was to be a documentary on the Tarim Basin, and I wouldn't have paid any attention to it except that, um, and I was already fascinated, really fascinated with mummies, but I didn't even I hadn't even heard of the mummies of the Tarim Basin. And um, a woman I knew who came to the um, uh, Indo-European conferences at UCLA, Janine Davis Kimball, who Vicky knows, knew, um, asked me to... to I just want to give, let me give Janine a shout out because I met Janine Davis Kimball. I love Janine Davis Kimball. So we're going to give her a little applause. Uh, we've no. talked about her on the, like, on the podcast. <laughs> yes. Miriam, it was Sean when he first contacted me who let me know that uh, Janine had died. I he didn't did. know. Yeah. Um, I, it was so wonderful that Sean Wynn um, was the first person to, to try to understand the, the old European script, the Vinci script. That's who you're talking about, right? Oh, I'm talking about our Sean, our matriarchal man right here, right now. Oh, you, Sean. Oh, my yeah, God. I, I had met the, the quick, very quick backstories. I had met uh, Jenny Davis Kimball. I had read Warrior Women. Uh, I had a film festival that celebrated Warrior Women on film and Action Women on film. And we would have a Warrior Woman panel every year. Uh -huh. And I invited Janine. And she loved it. And, I, and we were going to do it again for the next year. And I reached out to her. She said, yes, let's, you know, she's excited to do it. And then as the, as the festival approached, I reached out but hadn't heard from her. And I got worried that maybe she was oh. upset with us. And finally, yeah. I reached her granddaughter. And her granddaughter told me she had passed. But, and she said something very sweet that the festival that we did was Janine's favorite. She loved it because we celebrated these warrior women. But I had found out she had just passed two to three weeks before the festival was about to begin. Oh, bless your heart, Sean. Sean called it the Artemis Festival. Oh, wonderful. Do you want me to continue with? Yes, please. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So anyway, Janine asked me to watch this documentary she was going to be in, and I decided to record it as, as well. And it was um, 
Janine and Victor Mayer and a, a few others on camels um, going into the the uh, Taklamakan Desert and into the, the Tarim Basin. At any rate, um, I was totally fascinated because I was already fascinated with mummies. And um, so I thought, wow, this is wonderful. A week later, I had an email from Victor um, who I had never corresponded with and still don't know how he got an email address for me. At any rate, he said that he'd been looking at my writings and he um, he wanted to share what we were what we were working on and maybe do some writing together. And it was, you know, here I had for only first heard of him a week before. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I, so I thought that was just an amazing synchronicity and decided, yeah, we were supposed to work together. So we ended up, um, and it was, this documentary was about how he, in a museum, was the first person to, to identify some of these mummies as as European, they, they had European noses, European coloring, and so forth. So anyway, Victor and I ended up doing a conference paper for the UCLA Indo-European Conference, and then our 2010 book, and then a 2013 um, monograph. Um, through his online University of Pennsylvania monograph series that was an update on our findings on um, sacred display. Yeah. So it was, um, it, was, it was sort of miraculous, I think, and meant that this was really the work I was supposed to do. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's wonderful. It is. And uh, I guess as we're, we're we're coming towards the end, is there anything in terms of linguist, linguistics uh, that you'd like to share about these, the, you know, the Indo-Europeans or that sort of incursion that occurred at, uh, when it clashed with old Europe? Anything that stands out for you that maybe you want to share with the listener? Um, I can speak to the linguistics not to the archaeology. I can tell you that the Indo-European religion was very male-centered. There were only five goddesses. I, I wrote my dissertation on the, um, on the goddesses um, who shared names across cultures, because that's the only way you can see if something would go back to the proto-Indo-European, the the Indo-European culture before it, uh, in prehistory. And there were only four female, female figures, um, all naturalistic phenomena, uh, a river goddess, a sun maiden, a dawn goddess. Um, one, oh, Danu, the, um, that's the river goddess. So mainly river goddess, sun maiden, dawn goddess, and um, maybe a hearth goddess, but probably not. So, so very distinct from the, the goddess-centric uh, of old Europe in that sense. Vicky can speak to that. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's a complete overthrow, you know. They just, uh, in, in terms of the organized religion of the... Indo-European males, whatever they were, all of their rituals and so on, um, the, they pretty much did not include the what the, the women they had, you know, supposedly married. Their abduct the abduct abducted, yeah, yeah, their abducted women, their wives. They created patriarchal marriage. Um, they uh, continued to practice the old religion as we know because it comes all the way down through all the centuries and millennia into uh, contemporary Europe. Yeah. And, just... uh, and more than contemporary Europe, all the way across Central Asia. You know, it was one of the things that uh, Mary Kelly was very keen on uh, unearthing and expressing. Mary yeah. Kelly was the embroideries, goddess embroideries woman. And she wrote many books, and they are totally uh, fascinating. Well, absolutely, and they're and they're detailed, and they're just as interesting as Maria's books. And they and she was 
very aware of Maria and was using her as her uh, prototype, you know, for the work that she was doing. So all the way, I mean, Eurasia, Afro-Eurasia, basically. These women's practices didn't change that much uh, in millennia. And so that's, that's, that's something that Gimbutas told us. She said that. She, she talked about the unchanging motifs over a period of 4,000 years and how amazing that is. And the archaeologists just act like that isn't true. But if you study women's culture, it is true. It's such yeah, a... Yeah, and um, Elizabeth Barber's book, The um, Women's Work, The First yes. Thousand Years. Uh, and she was good friends with Maria. She came to Maria's first two international conferences. And um, she just, you know, it was... She analyzed, she even rewove textiles to show exactly how they were woven. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then they called her in. um, They called her in as a consultant when they were doing the work. The Tarn Basin. Yeah, and she was the one who nailed it. She and she and and Victor are friends as well. It's such a a a deeply moving idea of a, a culture, a way of life, a way of belief that was suppressed and yes, oppressed yes. still and, and, holding still holding on to the the rags of the glory that they once owned by by keeping this these ideas alive in increasingly um, marginalized ways but but still holding on to those concepts, even beyond the point where they even knew what they were holding on to. Uh-huh. And you know, the, um, the, oh God, I hope I'm not going to forget what I was going to say. Uh, the mummies, um, oh, I have forgotten it. I'm so sorry. No worries. No worries. It was so, such a great idea, but I'll come back. Have a lot of great ideas, but the problem is, Vicky, they come up through you, right? So you may or may not hold on to them, right? It's, it's more the universe, oh, right? I know what I was going to say that Tibetan connection is very important because in the Tibetan tradition, even today, there's something they honor called the terma, the terma tradition. Terma, ah. terma is treasure. And there are two kinds of terma. There are what they call mind treasures whispered into the ear of the terma finder, the tertan. Uh, and so that would be like I've said, the mother piece is a terma in that way, a mind treasure. Yeah. And, you, and there's a certain there are, there are things that are part of the classic tradition that were part of our process in mother piece, but. The other form of terma that's terribly important in Tibet, they're called earth treasures. And they're things like when you hear about these magician lamas, you know, who put their put a hand into the wall, a granite wall of some yeah. mountain and pull out, you know, a statue or a Tibetan bell or a Tibetan implement of some kind. Uh-huh. And so when the mummies happened, my my immediate thought because they the the because they changed the doctrine in archaeology and history and prehistory because the idea was nobody went anywhere and the and yeah. the mummies absolutely proved in an undebatable way that people went lots of places and people went places. everywhere yeah and so I felt immediately like, oh, this is an example of earth treasure. This is an earth treasure because it's, it's changed history, you know, just like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to end this segment Miriam, yes. I'm I'm hoping we can have you as a guest again. I am specifically I'm going through uh, your and Vicky's book on the four mothers 
Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm hoping that we can do a podcast with the two of you on that. Oh, that would be fun. This has been so yeah. enjoyable. But yeah, we definitely want to speak to you again um, about uh, a variety of subjects. So yes, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you so much for everything. Yeah. Bye. Thank Bye. you all for listening. Thank this you. has been the 34 Cersei Salon. The Matriarchy Great Again. We'll be back with you again soon. Take, Take care, care, everyone. And Take blessed care. be. And blessed be. Blessed be.